Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Carta. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court culminated what in many ways was a mundane term with a few fireworks and added to an October term 2017 docket looking significantly more substantial than the past couple. The High Court opined this week on President Trump's travel ban, the proper boundary between state funds and church coffers, sports gambling, public firearm carry, and also an important procedural mechanism in class action securities cases. The most newsworthy issuance was SCOTUS's take on President Donald Trump's travel ban, a per curiam court granted cert, and in the meanwhile allowed the ban to partially go into effect, keeping those without any bona fide U.S. connections from entering the country while the State Department reviews security measures, and while preventing the ban from impacting folks bearing such a bona fide connection. That ambiguous language drafted by the per curiam court raises the question, what exactly is a bona fide connection to the U.S.? David Rugendorf, an immigration attorney with Mitchell, Silberberg, and Nupp, says the court did provide some guidance as to that issue. The, the court, you know, did give some concrete examples. They talked about a person coming for employment or a person coming who's a student at a school who's admitted to a school, and also relatives, uh, close relatives. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it did give a few examples. But, um, you know, I don't think it really was an, it's supposed to be an exhaustive list of examples. I think uh, they kind of left that for the executive to decide. Indeed, since the ruling, the Trump administration has issued guidelines helping to define a bona fide relationship, saying those hoping to enter the country must be a parent, spouse, child, or sibling of a U.S. resident. Rugendorf says this definition is likely to prompt litigation from those whose familial relations are less traditional but nonetheless close. Theoretically, I think they looked at, you know, a history of immigration categories for familiar relationships and used that to try to determine which familiar relationships would be close ones and which ones are not. You know, the problem, I think, will be in actually enforcing this because we all know in real life it's, it's never really, you know, cut and dry or neat and there's so many different kinds of families. You, for example, you may have somebody who's basically raised their entire life by their grandmother, uh, but a grandmother is not considered a close relative. But what would you do in that particular situation? So I'm not sure if the approach is good to just say, you know, you know you're in this box if you're a grandparent, but you're in this box if you're a mother and father, because it's something that there's there are going to be cases where individuals are going to be aggrieved because... They really do have a close relationship, but it's not on the list. And so I think that'll probably be the subject of further, further court action or litigation. You know, part of the, the real problem people had the last time they tried to travel then was that there was, you know, no guidance at all and the guidance kept changing. And so, so I think what they're trying to do here is prevent that by coming up with these preordained lists. But, um, like I say, I don't think we've seen the last of it. Though the ambiguity over what counts as a bona fide connection could cause further court action, Rukendorf says the vagueness of the court's rule was key to crafting what he views as a very canny compromise. I think it was, frankly, a work of genius. Um, First of all, I think it's pretty remarkable that this case had, you know, relative unanimity. I know that there were three justices that uh, it took some issues with the approach. But, you know, basically this was almost a unanimous thing, and I think it's just remarkable to see that they kind of came together and crafted something. You know, what they've done is is they've basically said anybody who really has a standing, or most people who have a case to make, are exempted. But on the other hand, it, you know, it gives the president and his people a chance to say, well, we've accomplished this. So for that, I think it's, it's pretty clever. But, you know, even then, even though they, I think they've really taken pains to minimize the number of people that would be, you know, aggrieved by this stay, um, you know, there's always somebody, right? So there's, there will be people with compelling cases uh, who come in and say, you know, we have a close relationship and you're just, you're just defining it wrong. And then we'll see what happens. Another smart element of the court's ruling, Rugendorf says, is the way it might ultimately save SCOTUS from needing to address the merits of the temporary travel ban, which by its own terms would expire before the arguments in this case scheduled for October. Again, this is part of why I think it's, it's a real genius move. Not only would it kind of give a little something to everybody, but, but also uh, kind of set it up in a situation where, you know, 90 days will pass, President Trump will tweet, you know, uh, We've instituted extreme vetting everywhere, you know, thanks to me, uh, our country is now safe. Uh, and 
you know, they'll, they'll, it'll come out in a tweet and then this will all kind of expire and, it, and who knows what else might happen, but it, it this will just go away and the Supreme Court won't have to deal with it. Uh, I think they, I think they're kind of betting on that happening. They're thinking that, that, you know, I think that was probably part of their discussion that if we just do it this way, th- this case will never come back to us. We won't have to worry about this again. We've kind of solved the problem. One case the justices will not be hearing next term is the Ninth Circuit's Second Amendment ruling that's drawn the ire of gun rights activists in California and nationally. In that case, Peruta v. San Diego County, a split on bond court approved a California law requiring gun owners to show good cause before being allowed to carry a firearm in public. With the High Court's cert denial, the law surrounding public carry remains a bit uncertain, says Hannah Shearer of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, though she says that the Ninth Circuit is not alone among federal circuits in upholding a good cause requirement. This is an unsettled issue because Heller, the landmark Supreme Court opinion that established a right to uh, keep a handgun in the home, was narrowly written and, and didn't get into issues like the right to bear arms in public or even a number of other um, issues that have been the subject of Second Amendment challenges in lower courts since then. So as for what federal appeals courts and other courts have done um, with the question of the right to carry firearms in public, there's a clear trend, which is that courts have agreed that to the extent the Second Amendment does protect the right to carry in public, given the risks that public carry poses to others, it's it's a far more limited right than than the right to keep a handgun in the home, um, the right that was recognized in Heller. Like the Ninth Circuit, um, three other federal appeals courts, the Second, Third, and Fourth Circuits have upheld laws like California's. Uh, These are laws in New York, New Jersey, and Maryland that require someone to show good cause or a particularized need to carry a concealed firearm in public. Um, So, uh, you know, that's one example that shows that the, the right to public carry is more limited. That seeming harmony among circuits, Shearer says, is perhaps the most likely explanation for the courts opting to let the matter percolate in lower courts for now. Notwithstanding, petitioners claim that a circuit split does in fact exist because of a Seventh Circuit ruling relating to public carry. The challengers were trying to, you know, suggest there was a circuit split because uh, the Seventh Circuit struck down a law that completely prohibited the public carry of guns. That's a much more extreme law than the ones that have been upheld um, in these other circuits. So they may not see a need to step in just because the circuits are going the same way on this. I think it's it's certainly valid to interpret it as an agreement with the Ninth Circuit's ruling, and that tends to be how I see it. Um, just because the Ninth Circuit's en banc decision was, in my view, unquestionably right um, as a matter of historical analysis. They analyzed the history of concealed carry laws in America and saw that since the founding of our nation, states have uh, prohibited or restricted uh, concealed carry. And so the conclusion that the Second Amendment doesn't protect concealed carry in particular uh, seems to me to be you know, what the history points to. And then also Heller itself uh, recognized that most courts have upheld prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons. So I I don't think that um, a majority of, of justices saw an error in the Ninth Circuit's analysis of that issue. In dissenting from the cert denial, Justices Gorsuch and Thomas are much less sanguine than their co-evals about waiting to make a broad pronouncement on public carry. And they argue that the rights entailed in the Second Amendment have become disfavored by the high court, which has not heard a gun law case for nearly a decade, while fielding First Amendment and and Fourth Amendment cases regularly. Shearer says the lack of cert grants is is less because of any antipathy and more because of the types of cases being brought. Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch were pointing to uh, the fact that the Supreme Court hasn't heard argument in the Second Amendment case since McDonald, which was sort of the companion case, to Heller. Um, but I think an important piece of context for that is that gun rights groups have been pressing increasingly more extreme Second Amendment challenges to firearm safety laws. So they've been pressing arguments that it violates the Constitution to restrict access to assault weapons or even something as basic as conducting a background check on uh, a gun purchaser or requiring safety features in handguns. And so, you know, these go much further than 
um, Heller, you know, ever contemplated. The Supreme Court's decision in Heller was quite limited in that it expressly reserved to legislatures the right to regulate guns, especially, you know, when you're talking about a situation distinct from a handgun in, in the home. So I don't think that the cert denial in Peruta shows that Second Amendment rights are disfavored. I take it to mean that it's obvious that the Ninth Circuit's decision in Peruta doesn't run afoul of the Second Amendment. One case receiving a bit less notoriety, but nonetheless important in the evolution of class action litigation, was CalPERS versus ANZ Securities, a ruling seeing Justice Kennedy back in his well-worn spot as the swing vote in a 5-4 matter. There, the court deemed that a statute of repose in the Securities Act of 1933 barred, without any possibility of equitable tolling, putative class action plaintiffs from opting out of a claim and bringing individual suit after the statute's time limit. David Engstrom, professor at Stanford Law School who spoke with us when the case was argued, said an opinion like Kennedy's is one more chapter in a recent saga pitting SCOTUS against class action plaintiffs. My own view is that Rule 23 has been under assault for some time, and, and, and the courts have really moved to narrow Rule 23 in the operations of class actions without thinking hard enough, I think, about the effect uh, that their rulings have on lots of different types of plaintiffs. So I think it's inherently important uh, to ensure that courts and, and the Supreme Court are getting to the right answer on how we interpret and implement Rule 23. George Anhang of Cooley LLP, who helped author an amicus brief in support of the respondents, viewed things differently, seeing this decision as a straightforward application of settled civil procedure doctrine rather than another knock against class actions. I don't see this ruling as a new chapter on Rule 23, much less a, a new chapter on anything. What's most striking about the majority's decision here was that all it was doing was applying a few previous rulings of the court in a very straightforward way. And I'm referring to rulings like Waldberger, which had handed down in 2014, as well a decision in the Lamp case, uh, that came out some number of years ago, all the way back uh, in 1991. And I view what the Supreme Court did here in this case to be nothing more than apply in a fairly straightforward way some well-settled law that is settled by the Supreme Court itself in the area of statutes of repose on the one hand, as opposed to statutes of limitation on the other. So I don't see this decision as breaking new ground with regard to Rule 23, much less um, improperly impinging on rights that folks have under Rule 23. Moreover, despite the Ginsburg-led four justice minorities' exhortations to the contrary, Anhang says there are good reasons for treating statutes of repose differently than statutes of limitation, which may be equitably told. The concept of a statute of repose is part of the bedrock of American jurisprudence. And I think it has been widely accepted for an awful long time that there is a meaningful distinction between a statute of limitations and a statute of repose. In a Supreme Court case called Lamp, which was issued in 1991, the court not only identified and discussed those differences, but the court even went so far in that 1991 decision to say that the particular statute that was at issue in the ANZ Securities decision that was handed down this week, that even that particular statute and statutes like it are statutes of repose as opposed to statutes of limitations. So when Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, for the majority this week, identifies this statute as a statute of repose, he is not in any way breaking new ground with regard to Supreme Court law or the law generally with regard to statutes of repose. The 1991 Lamp Supreme Court decision, furthermore, makes very clear that statutes of repose cannot be equitably told. And that is a proposition that you will find to be a common thread, not only among the common law uh, jurisprudence uh, with regard to statutes of limitation and repose, but it's a common thread even among Supreme Court decisions up to and including the Lamp decision in 91, on to the Waldberger decision in 2014, where the court reiterates this bedrock principle that there are statutes of repose that are meaningfully different from statutes of limitation, and moreover, those statutes of repose cannot be equitably told. Justice Kennedy, in effect, merely repeats and reemphasizes 
this prior law well established by the Supreme Court itself. But Professor Engstrom says that allowing tolling for plaintiffs in large security matters like this one would not offend the statute of repose's purpose, as, as defendants are generally aware of who, like CalPERS here, has made large purchases of defending securities at issue. There's very little uh, uncertainty in securities fraud cases about potential liability. The reason is that large investors who make really large uh, securities purchases, they have to report those purchases uh, to the to the SEC. Um, and so there's actually quite a good record uh, of who the big plaintiffs might be who could opt out. So I'm not sure that we need some sort of proof positive that they want to pursue their claims. I think any defendant in a large securities fraud action can very easily calculate their total exposure and their total potential liability. But Anhang says the court is right not to consider such matters as surprise and notice since the law is clear that equitable considerations have no bearing on statutes of repose. Candidly, the issue of notice and surprise in these circumstances is actually somewhat of a red herring. And let me explain what I mean by that. First, the fact that the filing of a class action puts defendants on notice of their liability in some sense is just the kind of fact that a court might consider potentially significant if the court were conducting an equitable tolling analysis of a limitations provision. And indeed, in American Pipe, the Supreme Court did consider this notice and surprise issue. Well, for the reasons that the majority opinion persuasively points out, however, the statute that was at issue in the ANZ securities matter, which was Section 13 of the, of the Securities Act of 1933, was simply not a statute of limitations. It was a statute of repose. And under well-settled Supreme Court law, a statute of repose is not subject to equitable tolling. So equitable issues like notice and surprise that might be relevant in the context of equitable tolling are simply moot in the context of a statute of repose. The second reason that surprise and notice are in effect a red herring is notice or the fact that defendants are put on notice of the filing, uh, by the filing of a class action of their potential liability simply does not satisfy the purposes of a repose statute. The elimination of surprise simply doesn't cut to the heart of what a repose statute is designed to do. And Justice Kennedy, in his majority opinion, takes pains to identify what the fundamental purpose of a statute of repose is in these circumstances. And it's quite clear when he identifies that purpose that that purpose has nothing whatsoever to do with notice or surprise. What he says specifically early on in that decision is that the intent behind the statute of repose here was, and I'm quoting, was to protect the defendant's financial security by reducing the open period for the filing of lawsuits. So in light of that purpose of the statute of repose, the issue of notice and surprise is, again, quite moot. One concern raised by Justice Ginsburg, but minimized by Justice Kennedy, is the possible flood of protective filings that putative class members might file to ensure they don't become time-barred by waiting for developments in their class claims. Professor Engstrom, who compiled a quantitative study with his amicus filing in support of petitioners, says that concern is legitimate. I ask the following question. Uh, in what percentage of securities class action cases in which the court gets to a decision on class certification, is it the case that the statute of repose has already run such that a wise plaintiff, one of those putative class members who wanted to protect her rights in case the, the, the court decided not to certify the class, would still be able to pursue her rights via her own lawsuit, would still be able to get that time stamp uh, on uh, a complaint so as to not be time barred. Um, I ask a second question then is uh, then, which is that as a proportion of all filed securities class actions, right, not just those in which a court reaches a decision on class certification, um, in how many of those cases would it be the case that uh, a plaintiff or a putative class member needed to file one of these class actions in order to avoid being time barred if he or she uh, wanted to subsequently pursue her rights in a separate action? So the answer that I get to then by looking at this historical data and actually calculating for every single case when the, the statutes of statute of repose would have expired, um, my finding is that it's actually quite a lot of cases. 
Um, more specifically, um, half or more of the cases reaching a decision on class certification had the potential for producing one of these protective filings. That is to say, one or more putative class members would have been facing um, uh, the expiration of the statute of repose before the court reached a decision on class certification. Uh, and similarly, I find that roughly a quarter to a third of all filed cases um, uh, have that situation. And so if we extrapolate those estimates out to the total number of securities class actions filed over the past couple of decades, that's literally thousands of cases that we can think of as protective filing eligible, where there was a party who would have needed to make one of these protective filings. And Hang says Justice Kennedy was right to dismiss this concern as less exigent than Justice Ginsburg claims. He notes that evidence from the Second Circuit, where Justice Kennedy's approach has been the law for several years, shows no spike in protective filings. What the Supreme Court did um, in its ruling in ANZ Securities was simply to adopt the position that has been the law uh, in the Second Circuit for the last uh, almost four years. And so there's a lot of data available from the Second Circuit itself going back to 2013 with regard to cases that are subject to the statute of repose that was being evaluated here. And I think that the majority decision clearly reflects that there was simply no persuasive data that the plaintiff, CalPERS, had been able to assemble and present to the court and make part of the of the record in the Supreme Court that, in fact, an effect of the kind of position the Supreme Court was going to adopt here would be to cause a glut of unnecessary filings burdening the court system and unduly prejudicing those who would make those filings. Professor Engstrom worries that a few years of Second Circuit rulings are not enough to show assuredly one way or the other whether protective filings will unmanageably rise. We can't really study the actual effect of the Second Circuit's decision way back in IndyMac five years ago on the likely flow of protective filings yet. Right. If we were if we, you know, put on a social scientist hat, you know, ideally, if we were going to design a perfect study, we would isolate securities class actions filed before and after the Second Circuit first decided that this American pipe tolling rule doesn't apply to statutes of repose. But here's the problem. We can't do that here because even though that Indy Mac decision goes back a few years, its decision is still too recent. And so something I try to point out in the brief is that um, in many or even most of the cases filed since the Second Circuit's first uh, decision, right, that IndyMac decision, the statute of repose still has not yet expired as to many or most of the putative class members. So the point is that in these cases that have been filed since IndyMac, um, there are actually large numbers of putative class members who don't yet have the incentive to make any of those protective filings. So in other words, I guess the, the studies that look at opt-out actions, they too are in a sense based on historical data. They can't take account yet of this change. In any event, as Anne Hang describes, Justice Kennedy has identified some other less judicial economy taxing ways in which putative plaintiffs can protect their claims as opposed to filing protective actions. Justice Kennedy takes pains to note what, in his words, were simple mechanisms by which shareholders could adequately preserve their claims from being time barred. One of those simple mechanisms that he identifies is the addition of the name of an investor as a named plaintiff in the initial class action complaint that's filed that becomes the operative class action complaint in the case. Needless to say, having one's name simply added if in a class action complaint simply requires a letter to the plaintiff's counsel who's representing the lead representative plaintiff or a phone call and does not require any filing at all. So that simple mechanism by which can adequately protect their claims that Justice Kennedy identifies is a mechanism that does not require any filing at all, much less would it result in a glut of filings.
another major ruling out this week, answered the question of whether it violated the free exercise clause when a state refused to extend a state funding grant program to a church where the church, except for its status as a house of worship, was otherwise qualified for the program. Garrett Epps, a professor of law at the University of Baltimore, joins us now to unpack that ruling. Professor Epps, welcome to the podcast. That's good to be here. You wrote a piece for The Atlantic Magazine about the, the case we're speaking about, Trinity versus Comer, which perhaps in, a, in a, a term a bit lacking in them might have been the closest thing to a, to a blockbuster that we had. It involves, of course, the always vexing and provocative question of just how firm the boundary between church and state needs to be as required by the, the U.S. Constitution. Um, there's been a lot written about the opinion revolving around whether or not a state could restrict some state funds from a, a church's daycare that uh, sought them for playground resurfacing. Some on one side say that Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion siding with the church really just puts churches on equal footing and sort of unyokes them from an unfair discrimination that they had received. Others, believing Justice Sotomayor in the dissent got it right, say that this uh, this really sort of arose or takes some bricks out of that uh, wall between church and state described by Thomas Jefferson in his uh, 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptists. Uh, you sort of come down in in the middle. You say really kind of both the majority and the dissent might have uh, might have both gotten it wrong. And a- after all, the case really just shouldn't have been decided in the first place. I'd like to start, start there and talk about why you think so. In, in your article, you sort of outline a couple of reasons why one's broader and you know, the fact that the, the doctrine will be bedeviled by this decision, but one's a bit more practical with a reason why the case shouldn't have been decided. That was over the issue of, uh, of mootness and the fact that really the dispute at the bottom of this case had been resolved before the, you know, SCOTUS decided to, to make its ruling. Tell me about that dispute and how it had resolved prior to uh, this ruling this week. Well, yeah, absolutely. As you say, the, the church had applied to a grant program that was open to nonprofits uh, run by the state that that would help finance uh, resurfacing of playgrounds with recycled rubber tires so that, you know, kids falling out of the swing might not scratch themselves up so badly. And uh, uh, the church had applied and, and had received, in all other ways, a very high mark on its application. Uh, and But they, they were told they could not have the grant because the Missouri Constitution, not the federal constitution, but the Missouri Constitution said that no state money could flow to a church, you know, or a house of worship. Uh, and this is a common state provision, uh, you know, called the Little Blaine Amendment, uh, perhaps inaccurately now. Um, and this caused a lot of controversy that the church sued the state and this became a political issue in, in Missouri, and, and it was a reasonably important political issue in the 2016 elections. And in those elections, uh, Missouri elected a new governor and a new attorney general, and the new attorney general had campaigned quite uh, uh, loudly on the uh, premise that this decision was wrong and that, that the uh, church should have gotten its playground resurfaced. And when uh, the new governor took office, he announced that he was instructing his Department of uh, Natural Resources, I think it is, to go ahead and grant the application. He thought that, you know, this was a bad reading of the state constitution. He thought it violated the federal constitution uh, and obviously, I think, thought it was politically popular. And so he ordered the church to get its playground. Uh, now, the, the court was notified of this. Uh, in essence, there's nothing left to fight about. But they said, they said, well, there's this doctrine called voluntary cessation. Is the governor, the government <clears throat> can't moot a case by uh, stopping the unconstitutional action if they could start it up again. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, my reaction was, do we really think that they're going to be sending state workers to tear this playground mm-hmm. out of the ground? I don't think so. So to that extent, the uh, you know, because this is the, the the church was the only party in the case, and they had their playground. But uh, you know, the the justices they they had the bit in their teeth, and they were going to decide it. And you know, it never occurred to me till this moment that you know you're you're absolutely right. The uh, the term had been pretty sleepy, uh, with a lot of stuff like the Armed Career Criminal Act and so forth. And maybe the justices just thought, you know, to hell with it. We need one case that's going to be controversial. Uh, so they went ahead and, and decided this case, and the, they came down in favor of the, quote, church, unquote, seven to two. Yeah, that involuntary cessation doctrine, that's one of uh, 
those sort of subheaders pretty far into that constitutional law uh, outline one yeah. one might have. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it is interesting to see the court decide something that you know, they do maybe, maybe tend to shy away from deciding big cases unless they, they really need to. It's interesting to see them weigh in there uh, nonetheless. Well, I, I think that on the conservative side of the court, there was a pretty strong inclination on the part of at least three of the justices uh, to, to grab this chance to move the doctrine in the direction of greater accommodation of religious bodies in the state funding context. This is part of the uh, agenda of the uh, conservative legal movement. I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. It's just describing this is one of the things they think, that the so-called wall uh, is is a wrong metaphor and that the state can offer so-called non-discriminatory aid to religion uh, and as you know, as many as 38 states have these amendments, and so uh, a court case calling those amendments into question is going to give rise to litigation in, in a lot of states, uh, and it's going to give you know new ammunition for people who think that church schools and homeschooling and all kinds of religious institutions ought to be allowed to uh, access state funds without having to agree. Uh, to conditions like non-discrimination and 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 so forth, uh, it, it it's potentially you know the playground itself. There wasn't anything at stake by the time the case came up, but the stakes for how the precedent is applied are are huge. We'll go ahead and get into that precedent now formed, and I'll walk through a couple of the uh, the different opinions here. I'll oversimplify them a bit, I'm sure, but starting with Chief Justice Roberts' take for the majority, he essentially says you know this is discrimination based on religion, so. Strict scrutiny applies, and, and that's that. The discriminated against party wins. Also, in his opinion, Roberts evokes some some pretty graphic medieval-type imagery of chains and torture when he talks about the potential for religious discrimination, of course, saying that Missouri has not subjected anyone to, to those. Um, now, in the way that he's described the facts of this case and laying them out for to apply the doctrine, you say that Chief Justice Roberts doesn't quite explain it precisely right. Uh, what, what do you mean? No. He, well, he what he says is, that the church was denied uh, this opportunity to compete for this grant because of its religious identity, right? And and that term is one we're mostly familiar with, and you know we know uh, our religious identity or someone else's, uh, and and you interpret that as saying because they are Lutheran or because they are Christian, but that's not at all what it was. It's not because of their religious identity. They were denied the grant because of their organization. Uh, the daycare and a lot of church-affiliated daycares could have been organized, and most of them are, as a separate nonprofit from the church with its own board, right? It still has a, a religious mission uh, and is still related to the church, but it's a different body. And had that been the case in the Trinity Lutheran uh, case, they would have been able to compete for the grant, because under Missouri law, that arrangement doesn't violate the Little Blaine Amendment. St. Louis University, which was founded by the Society of Jesus and affiliated with, by the, with the Jesuits and until recently had a Jesuit president and has guaranteed Jesuit representation on its board, was held by the Missouri Supreme Court not to be barred from receiving state funds. So when, when the Chief Justice says it's because of their religious identity, he's hiding the ball a little bit. It's not because of their religious identity. It's because they chose to say, we want the money paid directly into the church treasury. And that's what the Missouri Constitution uh, seems to forbid. Then, he, as you say, immediately afterwards, he begins saying, this is just the same as uh, in the 19th century when uh, a gentleman was told he couldn't serve in public office or sit on a jury in Maryland because he was a Jew. And then he makes this long speech, that is, the, the individual from history has made this long speech about how now you'll subject me to torture in chains. And, mm -hmm. and you know, he does, the Chief Justice does rather grudgingly admit that, that no one's putting anybody in chains in Missouri, but he acts as if... Uh, there's this, the state of Missouri is this hotbed of anti-Christian uh, feeling, and I think that if you pause for a minute, one of the things you have to do when you're reading the Chief Justice's prose is you got to stop and think for a minute because he's so smooth. You stop for a minute, you think, wait a minute, Missouri, you know, is is this the discriminating against Christians, and the next stop is is whips and chains and torture. You know, I think there's 
there's some discrepancy here with the facts. Uh, so it's a classic sort of John Roberts uh, move. He, the, the man is incredibly smooth with language. Uh, and so you, you almost, you know, it's like a ventriloquist. You almost don't see his lips move. Uh, but it is, it is really wrong. It is, it is not a correct description of the facts. And it's important to parse that out as you write, because churches, as opposed to just religious groups generally, or religious folks generally, uh, churches do benefit somewhat from a separation from state in terms of issues like taxation or in other ways, right? Well, they have exemptions from discrimination laws, you know, under uh, uh, a number of cases that a church is permitted in hiring to discriminate in favor of its own, uh, the members of its own uh, faith and so forth. So they're getting a lot of advantages out of the church organization form. Um, and it seems, you know, not quite cricket for them to say, but we don't want any of the disadvantages of being a church. With all that said, you don't necessarily get on board with the other side's view either, that it's right to withhold funds for this purpose. We're talking about a pretty trivial thing here, playground repair. In that dissent, Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ginsburg, says that the provision of state funds for this purpose would be a pretty clear establishment clause violation. Uh, you say that that goes too far. Justice Sotomayor, uh, who, who is quite exercised and passionate, uh, says that giving the funds uh, in and of itself violates the Establishment Clause. And going into the case, both parties had stipulated that the Establishment Clause did not forbid Missouri to give the money, right? In other words, they had said, this is not an establishment issue. This is an issue of free exercise. That's right. There is a precedent uh, called Locke versus Davey from uh, the 80s uh, in which the state of Washington uh, had uh, another one of these little Blaine amendments, and they offered scholarships to high achievers in Washington public schools who went on to college. And one of the recipients of the scholarship said he wanted to go to a Christian college, a Bible college, and study devotional theology. And, and they told him, uh, unfortunately, under our uh, state constitution, we can't fund uh, a degree in theology. That's too direct a funding to religion. Now, notice that's not even that is not a funding to a church, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the, the, the funds were going to go to a nonprofit, which was the university. And they said, you can go to that college. You just have to major in something else. Mm -hmm. And that case went to the Supreme Court, and the court held that that did not violate the student's rights uh, because the church, the, the state could make the choice uh, to kind of keep clear of entanglement with religion by not funding these kind of exercises. And, and in that opinion, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist enunciates this point that's been used in the doctrine ever since. He says there has to be some, quote, play in the joints uh, between establishment and free exercise. And basically what he's saying is it, it just cannot be, it is unworkable to take the position that every accommodation of religion that is not forbidden by the Establishment Clause, you know, is required by the Free Exercise Clause. Right. That every interaction between church and state is going to become a constitutional issue and be litigated. That is, uh, you know, too difficult to administer. It's too, it, it, it deprives the states of some of their prerogatives to manage these things. He said, so we're, we're going to exercise control to make sure that there's no direct violation of uh, these rights, but but we're just not going to make a federal case out of all of them. And and the chief justice seems to have backed off that somewhat, because uh, because you know the idea is no, it is a violation of the free exercise clause. Now the justice Sotomayor says it it violate it would violate uh, the establishment clause for them to voluntarily pay of the playground. I I have trouble with that. Uh, and she says this is an integral part of the church's religious mission. Mm -hmm. And and one of the points I make is, you know, I, I I'm sure you like me have prayed on a playground before. <laughs> you know, you like please don't let this guy hit me. <laughs> but but that doesn't make it a pew. That doesn't make it a church. Mm -hmm. And to say that that kids can't have the benefit of this playground surface uh, strikes me as perhaps a bit more rigid than I would like my state government to be. Um, but I certainly don't think it would violate the Establishment Clause if they said they could, because it, it is something so far afield.
from the concerns of the people that wrote the Establishment Clause uh, that I, I, I just wish both sides had been willing to back off and say, look, the political process, which we all profess to believe in, we all profess to believe that America is a democratic republic governed by representative government, that the people's representatives and the church's representatives have worked this out. It's all settled. Let's just back off and let, let this issue percolate a little more. Yeah, that, that play in the joints that you mentioned, it, it does not seem to exist here, either in the majority or the dissent. Um, you know, uh, I think the, the long-term goal is to do away with that, right? And, and that, that uh, over the last few years, uh, with cases like Hobby Lobby and Town of Greece versus Galloway, we've seen a gradual expansion of uh, the free exercise clause until really, you know, we're going to reach a situation where religious organizations are entitled to every advantage that secular organizations can get, whether it's, you know, state funding or so forth, but at the same time are also entitled to uh, exemption from any kind of regulation to which they object. And I, I don't think this is a healthy uh, or sustainable approach. Okay, I did want to quickly get into the quibbles that Justices Breyer, Gorsuch, and Thomas have with the majority opinion. On, on one mm -hmm. side, um, Breyer says it's an important distinction to be made here that we're we're talking about funding that will not really go to any you know, obviously religious end, you know, a playground. Right. Uh, and on the other side, Thomas and Gorsuch make the point that there really shouldn't be a distinction at all, that withholding state funds for religious groups that would otherwise be qualified for them would be discrimination, sort of no matter what the funds would go to. Kind of walk me through both of those, and if you think that either of those might end up sort of prevailing or being a, a more a bigger part of the eventual doctrine here. Well, I think a lot of what's going on in this case uh, is is under the, uh, the waterline uh, to some extent. Um, and and that is uh, that you know the, the question is how are we going to set up the next case, mm -hmm. uh, and the the most important, if if somewhat you know mysterious part of the opinion is footnote three, uh, in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion where he says well of course you know and whenever Roberts says something like that, you should always make sure you have your hand on your wallet. He says of course this opinion really is only. Uh, is only about things like playground. It's only about playground surfaces. This is certainly not, uh, has no, it doesn't express any view about funding for, uh, uh, more directly religious purposes. Um, and, uh, Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito refused to join footnote three. So you have one of these great Rehnquist court style headnotes that says, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court except as to footnote three. Um, now, I have a feeling that uh, some kind of horse trading went on behind the scenes, much the way that it happened or we think it happened uh, in the uh, Obamacare case, uh, NFIB versus Sibelius. Uh, and the Chief Justice picked up a couple of votes, um, particularly Justice Kagan's vote, if he would put in some language that purports to limit this, because what, as you note, what the uh, three most conservative justices want is a sweeping ruling that just says churches have to be allowed into anything. Uh, and it, it, this strikes me as a singularly bad vehicle for such a sweeping ruling, but there is language in the opinion that, that can be used uh, to push the law in that direction. And I don't think there's much question that that's the long-term agenda. Yeah, of course, the Toledo and Thomas say that the, this distinction really isn't tenable. I suppose we'll see if that's true. Is that really, when you write in the Atlantic article, you say that this ruling will, will end up bedeviling the future doctrine? Is that where the bedevilment will, will be in that detail? Well, I, I do. I think that, you know, what you're seeing with this separate opinion by Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, uh, is um, that a signal to litigators saying, please, bring me some cases. We are ready to push this. Uh, and it's something justices do all the time. So when I say bedevil uh, the doctrine, I mean, we're going to see a lot of litigation on this issue. There's a lot of playgrounds out there. There's a lot of daycare centers. There's a lot of social service programs. Uh, there are a lot of churches that want to get their hands on, on state money. Uh, and we're going to have to litigate 
every little issue uh, in this regard uh, as a free exercise issue. And I think that the court is going to be thoroughly sick of this issue by the time it's over. Maybe de- describing the alternative, had the, the court done what you thought was most prudent and just um, let this case be decided on a mootness ground, what does what the alternative universe look like where um, we're just still with the, the previous doctrine? It would not have been as easy as uh, the challengers would have liked to think to bring another case. I think that was one reason why there was reluctance to let go of this case. This was the perfect vehicle to get the ruling that the conservatives wanted. Very appealing bunch of folks, you know, local church, and they run this daycare, and it's open to kids from all over the neighborhood, and it's a playground, and, you know, uh, there were people in front of the court uh, on the day of the uh, decision uh, saying, you know, stand with children, playground safety. You know, they they tried to... uh, uh, you know, spin this as, you know, that the the liberals are opposed to kids getting, uh, being safe. Um, And so it it actually, vehicles like this don't come along every day, so that there would have been more ambiguity in the doctrine. And the Washington precedent that I cited, Locke versus Davey, about play in the joints, would still have been prominently featured. That that precedent's been undercut uh, by this case. It certainly sounds like maybe first in a bit of an arc of cases that, that you say will, will come next. I guess we'll, we'll see where this doctrine goes. But uh, for now, Professor Garrett Epps, uh, thanks very much for being on the podcast to chat about the ruling. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. After a, a term with some some cases that I think are fair to call a bit mundane or technical, maybe of interest principally to legal practitioners or court watchers, the uh, the October term 2017 is really starting to to brim with cases of, of general interest, um, and one of them deals with the potential legalization of, of sports gambling. Here to talk about that is Glenn Rostein of Rostein Law APC, where he's an entertainment and sports attorney. Glenn, let me ask you off the bat here, the, this case, or actually two consolidated ones, Christie versus NCAA and New Jersey Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association versus the NCAA, they are attempts by the state to legalize sports gambling, or at least partially legalize it. And the, the Supreme Court asked for the U.S. Solicitor General's advisement as to whether it should hear the case that the lower court had denied New Jersey these attempts. The Solicitor General advised the court not not to review that case, not to grant cert, but nonetheless, this week on Tuesday, the court did so. The court does tend to give some, some weight to the Solicitor General's advisement. Why do you think in this situation with the question over legal gambling, they decided to wade in anyway? Well, first, I'd like to thank you, Brian, and the Daily Journal for having me on today. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I think one of the driving reasons why the court took the case against the uh, advisement of the Solicitor General is really more of a, a political a political answer. Um, I think that the Trump administration probably would like some clarity on this issue, but as we all know, Trump um, does not like to lose. And, you know, no pun intended, this case is certainly by no means a slam dunk. First of all, it's very unusual for the Supreme Court to even ask for a, solic- a Solicitor General's opinion. By divesting uh his administration from having any perceived interest in the outcome you know win lose or draw this is going to fall squarely on the supreme court's in the supreme court's lap and not on on donald trump with the specter of facing a defeat behind legislation that he's not confident is going to win i think it would be more likely than not that behind closed doors he's clearly in favor of legislation that would legalize gambling, both as a revenue stream in terms of regulation and taxation, uh, as well as having been in the casino industry in in Atlantic City, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, favors to repay and a lot of friends, or at least business friends, that he's built over the years. But I think he wants to have perceived neutrality on this issue and may be confident that the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of legalizing the gambling without him having to put his neck out and uh, potentially suffer a defeat. 
Okay, so if the SG advises the court to hear it and then the court decides against New Jersey, then the Solicitor General advising them to, to hear that lower court case that had already sided against New Jersey would perhaps look look worse. And also, you know, Adam Silver, who has come out so strongly in favor of a, of a regime of legalized, regulate tax, he knows a lot better than all of us. And he seems pretty confident that this is inevitable and is going to happen. And it's just a question of what form the legal the legalization is going to take. Is it going to be a federal, a federal regulatory scheme or whether it's going to be a state-by-state uh, regulatory scheme? The NCAA and the leagues appear to favor a federal solution. Um, and I think most of the major sports leagues, the professional leagues, fear a scenario where the act is repealed and it's kind of the Wild West and every state is allowed to dictate its own gambling uh, regulations. But again, that all remains to be seen until the threshold matters decided as to whether the repeal of PAPSA and New Jersey's constitutional arguments uh, carry the day. Right. Yeah, I wanted to, to get into that, the bulwark that has been working against the potential legalization of sports gambling to this point. PAPSA, you mentioned the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act uh, from 1992. What exactly does that um, act pro- proscribe, and how, how do its provisions work? I mean, essentially what it prescribes uh, and prohibits is uh, illegal wagering of all kinds, except for four states that have been grandfathered in, um, Nevada, Delaware, Oregon, and Montana. And the arguments that New Jersey is making is basically, number one, the federal law is unconstitutional in that it's granting, you know, favorite status to four states, and particularly Nevada, for a great revenue stream at the expense of the at the rest of the states. The uh, parties are also making a, um, a Tenth Amendment argument um, in terms of whether the whether PAPSA violates the Tenth Amendment by enabling the federal government to control whether or not a state can repeal or modify or, or change its own prohibitions on private conduct, which sports attorneys such as myself strikes at a deeper issue than just gambling. So it's kind of a perfect storm. Um, I think one of the reasons also that the Supreme Court decided to take this case, I think it's more than coincidental that the granting of cert comes on the heels of the FTC seeking an injunction against uh, DraftKings and FanDuel's with respect to whether they're creating a monopoly in the daily fantasy sports realm. And I think we've reached a point now where at the federal level, there's a realization that legalized gambling is inevitable. The fans want it. Non-fans want it because it attracts some interesting games they otherwise wouldn't be interested in. The leagues want it for the same reasons. There's so much money involved, and the federal government may be trying to get a jump on crafting a comprehensive federal regulatory scheme that not only regulates and taxes your traditional sports books and uh, and betting houses, but also online gambling, daily fantasy sports, all sorts of things. So now is the right time for them to do that. And with the backing of the league commissioners, really other than Goodell, um, they've got a lot of groundswell support from both the general public and from the league commissioners. You know, Adam Silver has by far been the, the strongest proponent, stating we're all for it, we legalize, regulate tax. Commissioner Manfred, in connection with the Raiders' move to Las Vegas, said he would absolutely be in favor of looking at Las Vegas as a locale for either an expansion team or a, re- or a relocation team. You've got the NHL that will actually be the first major sport of the four major sports uh, to have a professional team that will be playing in Nevada. And even the NFL, if you, if you look a little deeper, you know, Goodell is still stating a very integrity of the game, anti-gambling stance, ostensibly. But at the same time, when the Raiders were contemplating their move to 
Las Vegas, he issued a league memo in February saying we're going to review this move just like any other. But also, the NFL is broadening its base in London. They're expanding the NFL presence to Mexico, where gambling is legal. They're involved with DraftKings and uh, and FanDuel. So, you know, read between the lines. Goodell's many things, but he's not unintelligent. So I think he's putting up the brave face and the brave fight, but he knows eventually the NFL is going to be a part of this in some way or some form. He just doesn't, I believe, want the rubber stamp to occur on his watch. If that evolution is happening within the majority or perhaps all of the sports leagues, then coming to the realization that sports gambling in whatever form, perhaps daily fantasy gambling or the traditional uh, sports book type is coming, uh, these entities are on the other side of the V here. Uh, they brought suit against New Jersey. Why are the sports leagues in, in the case? And you know, when the Supreme Court is hearing like this case, will they be arguing you know, full-throatedly against legalization if, as you say, they perhaps are coming around to the inexorability of its legalization? I think that all the states, including California, are going to be in favor of legalized gambling as just a threshold matter. If you start with that, as the threshold issue. Should PAPSA be repealed, yes or no? I think where states may diverge and leagues may diverge is what form should it take? Some states may favor a federal regulatory scheme. Some states may favor and leagues may favor a state-by-state regulatory scheme because what every state for the most part is gonna wanna do is gonna come up with some types of schemes which maximize the uh, the revenue in which, you know, they'll be able to share and which they'll be able to derive. The NCAA has a little bit of a, of a, of a different agenda in that they want to, they want to insulate, you know, what they claim are young, unprotected athletes from the underbelly of the, of the gambling world. College sports are a little different in that you hear about point shaving scandals because these kids are young and they're not getting paid yet. And some of them may never play at the next level and make that big money. In the pros, the athletes are getting paid, so there's less of a chance of a, of, a, of a point shaving scandal. But again, whether you have this law in place or whether you don't have this law in place, if you're going to get to a player, you're going to get to a player. And in this economic climate, if you look at this pragmatically and are a realist, it's going to happen whether you legalize it or you don't. So if it's happening, you might as well, again, legalize it, regulate it, and tax it. You create a revenue stream for the, for the, for at the federal level and for the states. You're able to now admit that it's going on and put in preventative measures and educational measures. And, you know, perhaps some of the, the shadiness that is surrounding the, the gambling issue as it stands now will go away because everything is brought into the light. Those ec- equities you, you align there in favor of the, the legalization regime, you know, they sound in, in, in the realm of practical and policy type considerations, things perhaps best left and engineered by, by the legislature. But in terms of a, a legal basis, what do you think the court could rule upon if they were to side with New Jersey? You mentioned a 10th Amendment argument and also an argument based on the differential treatment between Jersey and the other states that got grandfathered in? Is that uh, where you think the court would be able to find some ground to to rule for New Jersey? Absolutely. You know, one of them is just a a fundamental fairness issue. Why do four states get to share in this uh, treasure trove of gambling riches and we don't? And then there's the more overarching issue of the 10th Amendment and uh, the ability to uh, repeal uh, federal laws at the state level. And that's more of a question of, of federalism. I think it probably would be easier for the court to simply state it's unconstitutional to allow four states to have this be legal because of grandfather clauses and 46 states not, than address that much larger, broader issue, which could have implications outside of the precedent that is being set in, in, in the sports world. On, on, on issues like this, the, the Supreme Court generally does not like to make broad, broad pronouncements mm-hmm. on uh, factual scenarios that aren't before them. Assume that they do side with the state of New Jersey. What sort of impacts are we looking at for attorneys of practice in California? I imagine, as you say, that California would, would not want to be left out of 
the uh, potential tax revenue that could be generated by um, legalizing sports gambling, do you think that they would get in the market? And how would that affect uh, attorneys such as yourself practicing within the, the sports law and entertainment law realm? Well, well, California, you know, I think it was either in 2015 or 2016, passed a bill, I think it was AB 1441, to legalize gambling, uh, but only in the event that uh, PAPSA was repealed. And other states have different permutations, including California, where it's the repeal of PAPSA and a constitutional amendment to allow gambling or the repeal of PAPSA and a state referendum uh, permitting it. But really, if this case um, goes in favor of New Jersey, I think virtually overnight you are going to see a, uh, a tsunami of gambling legislation that is coming forward, especially if it's ruled that it's a state-by-state controlled issue rather than a federal issue where it's going to be globally addressing a lot of things. Like I said, not just traditional sports book betting, but uh, the possibilities, you know, really are endless. As far as daily fantasy sports goes, there could be the uh, the introduction of live or, or in-game wagering where you could potentially bet on a dozen propositions during the course of a game. And that's another natural for live betting in the developing of esports industry. So it's going to have overarching effects that go uh, across the board. Well, certainly a lot to, to watch out for. Then I imagine attorneys like yourself are, are paying very close attention to this case and many uh, other folks as well. Um, Glenn Rostein of Rostein Law APC. Thanks for being on the podcast to, uh, to unpack it for us. I appreciate it. Anytime. That our show for June 30th, 2017 is complete. Thanks very much to all of my guests and thank you for tuning in. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a nice long July 4th weekend and a great week.